0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, October 9th, 2017. I'm Caleb Brown. Speech that is extreme still deserves protection from government censorship, and drawing the line between acceptable speech and extremist or hate speech is virtually impossible. Cato senior fellow Fleming Rose spoke with me about extreme speech and the effort currently underway in Italy and elsewhere to begin regulating so called fake news. I see uh, protesters who uh, are holding up signs quite often, Uh, one in particular, it said, hate speech is not free speech, Uh, and hashtag take a knee. And the idea was that, I guess, sort of mixing the various uh, memes and uh, protest movements, one is arguing that uh, freedom of speech does not include speech at the extreme ends, and that uh, a, a silent protest of taking a knee of quietly uh, protesting something—that's this—is appropriate. This is the how we're meant to make use of our rights to free speech. You draw a dis- distinction that a lot of people uh, don't draw. You draw a distinction between speech that is merely offensive or uh, awful in a way and speech that is dangerous. So why is it important that we make that distinction between extremist speech and speech that is dangerous?
1: Because um, the first, a, a fundamental First Amendment principle is viewpoint neutrality. And uh, when it comes to hate speech, first, there is no clear definition of what hate speech is. You know, one man's hate speech may be another man's poetry. Um, And if you you engage in or, or if you try to define the limits of free speech with references to extremist speech or hate speech, you very easily end up in a situation where you will tend to shut down speech that you don't like. Uh, and not necessarily speech that in fact constitutes a clear and present danger of uh, violence. That's why I prefer the concept of dangerous speech when we discuss uh, the legitimate um, limits on uh, on speech in a liberal democracy. Extremism uh, doesn't mean much in and by itself. I mean, what do you prefer? Uh, a moderate defender of uh, fascism or an extremist uh, supporter of liberal democracy. Um, it all comes down to, uh, to the context, um, and it also changes across time and cultures and countries. If you take the abolitionist uh, movement in uh, the United States in the 18th, 19th century, it engaged in extremist speech if you if you take the social and political norms of the time as uh, a measure stick. So so uh, so I I would be very careful uh, to to use extremist speech or extremism as some kind of of measure stick when it comes to uh, the debate about what. The legitimate limits on uh, on speech should be in a liberal democracy.
0: And, and as you as you note, uh, hate speech doesn't really mean anything, and it uh, as it, a legal basically that just
1: means th- speech that I don't like. <laughs> and, and as a
0: legal matter, it definitely doesn't mean anything because it because it can mean so many different things in different contexts. There are people who are concerned, however, about a creating a climate of fear. Uh, in which people—we've uh, talked about hate crimes in the past, uh, whatever that might mean in any given circumstance, but there are people who say that there's a world of difference between uh, beating somebody up and leaving them on the street uh, and beating somebody up and leaving them on the street and then painting some sort of uh, swastika or uh, hammer and sickle uh, on a wall— as you do it or yelling some sort of epithet as you do it and that these these are very different in a way when it comes to how we punish those kinds of activities
1: i don't think it makes a lot of difference to the victim i mean the victim is uh, the target of a crime no matter uh, what the motivation i think that there may be legitimate reasons for um, for having this sense of uh, a climate of fear. But I just don't think that the best way to fight it is um, by using uh, the measure stick of uh, hate speech versus uh, non-hate speech as, um, uh, as a guideline. We've talked about this before
0: uh, in, in a related matter, and I think it's worth repeating. Why is it important that we not... Uh, punish hate crimes uh, as a separate matter than we pum- punish an identical crime that has no sort of uh, specific content to a message that is sent in the crime.
1: Because it will, it will reinforce this um, problematic notion that there is a direct correlation between hate speech and hate crimes, that evil words will lead to evil deeds. And in order to fight it, we do not only have to punish the perpetrator of the actual crime, but we will also have to punish speech that we allege lead to these kind of crimes. And the fact of the matter is that there is no documented um, uh, or clear uh, link between uh, evil speech and uh, evil deeds, though, of course, there is a link between speech and violence. It's just, uh, I think, more complicated, and there are many more factors at uh, play than just uh, speech. Um, and 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 still, the best way to fight this is um, is with more speech, not uh, not less speech. So, how do you evaluate uh,
0: groups like these? Uh white supremacists and white nationalists, or as I like to say, whatever stupid distinction they want to make about themselves uh, to, to make them seem less uh, offensive, and Antifa groups. One, uh, they marched in Charlottesville. Uh, at least one of them became extremely violent and killed a person. Uh, and, and yet, on the other side, Antifa has uh, made a sort of a public showing of saying that anyone who is articulating fascist ideas on street corners or anywhere else they're going to take pains to shut that person down in, in their words or in, in some folks uh, antifa folks words uh, to prevent them from recruiting.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean when it comes to uh, the first amendment I don't think there is any difference uh, in the sense that we we approach the first amendment and the interpretation of the first amendment based on viewpoint neutrality so so it's if it's radical left or if it's radical right uh, it's the same in in terms of uh, the same of, of the first amendment that uh, the the red line that you are not allowed to cross is incitement to violence or incitement uh, of uh, incitement to a threat of violence. That is not protected speech, uh, no matter whether it's uh, white supremacist uh, speech or anti-fascist uh, speech. And I think that there is an interesting comparison to be made when it comes to uh, the, the neo-Nazis and the white supremacists um, between the 1977 uh, Skokie affair and um, the rally in uh, Charlottesville that erupted in violence and uh, and clashes. Uh, In 1977, neo-Nazis marched through Skokie, Illinois, a town where at that time, uh, a majority of the population were Holocaust survivors or at least many Holocaust survivors lived in that town. And they wanted to march through Skokie wearing um, Nazi symbols like the, the swastika. And, and, and this was considered by the Supreme Court in the end as protected speech, even though it was extremist, it was very offensive and uh, hurtful to, uh, to these Holocaust survivors, but it was not dangerous speech. People in Charlottesville uh, uh, marched, more or less, uh, you know, committed to the same ideology, but uh, they were wearing weapons. They clashed with counter demonstrators, and one individual was killed, and I think uh, dozens were injured. Uh, and that kind of speech is not protected by uh, the First Amendment. So you can have, in fact, this uh, Nazi ideology. Uh, in one case uh, in fact being expressed in a way so that it is protected by the first amendment but in another case when it involves uh, threats of violence and actual violence it's not protected speech and i would say the same goes for the antifa i think on a broader societal level uh, even though there is some concern now i think the the the, the anti fascist uh, uh, movement has a broader appeal this ideology to, uh, to more mainstream circles uh, on the ideology, not the violence. I don't think anyone would condone the violence, but, but the fact that you have to uh, oppose uh, right-wing ideology and things like that, I think it has a broader support than, uh, than, than neo-Nazi ideology. But that's just my sense. All right,
0: let's uh, shifting gears just a little bit. Uh, you have a piece upcoming dealing with how Italy has uh, decided to deal with this scourge of fake news, which uh, I'll admit is a is a problem, but uh, it's a problem for consumers to contend with. I don't think it's a problem for speech per se, but in Italy, they've taken a very sort of specific and very restrictive uh, attack with it. What have they? What have they proposed to do?
1: Well, the the antitrust chief of the Italian government, um, Giovanni Pietrocella, uh, he just published a book and and in several articles he have he has um, agitated for the point of view that uh, the government should get involved in the verification of information, and he also wants the government. Uh, to provide the government with the necessary authority to remove what it defines as fake news and and uh, fine media companies that do not obey. But this is not only an Italian uh, issue. It's in fact going on in, uh, in Europe on a broader scale. Uh, the German government uh, passed a law that makes it possible to fine companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter – up to 50 million euros, 50 million euros, that's more than 50 million dollars, if they do not take down what they define as hate speech or fake news uh, quickly enough. To me, this sounds as a ministry of truth. I don't think it's up to the government to engage in 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 conversations and debates about what is the truth. Uh, that to me sounds like um, you know something I know from uh, the Cold War in the Soviet Union, where it was a criminal offense to uh, deliberately disseminate what the government saw as false information, and that was exactly the article that was used by the Soviet government to um, to lock up dissidents, and and I, I understand that we have a different. Uh, tradition and a different, uh, better protected culture, free speech in Western Europe. But I don't think the Europeans are that much different uh, by nature. So if you if you start providing the government with these kind of authorities, I am quite sure that that authority will be used, as Pietrocella, in fact, himself acknowledged in a piece in the financial times uh, earlier this year in which he said that you know we need this in order to fight populism uh, which is uh, as far as i understand a legitimate political movement they are in the italian parliament uh, uh, this five star movement uh, you can agree or disagree with it but it's 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 within the law uh, and now uh, people on the other side of the political pe- uh, spectrum they want laws that makes it possible for them to uh, to crack down on 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 what they understand as populism
0: is there any appetite for that in the united states do you think i mean based on uh, how the uh, people are talking about russian interference w- with respect to the 2016 election there seems like there there may Absolutely. be an appetite for that kind of restriction
1: i mean i recently i i saw uh, uh, a surprising opinion poll i think it was, was economist and yougov on uh, on whether Republicans and Democrats in the United States would be in favor of fining uh, U.S. media if they publish uh, so-called fake news, and it's around fifty percent, fifty percent of Americans who would be in favor of such uh, uh, a guideline. Uh, that's that's concerning, <laughs> and it 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 it. It says, you know, even though you have the First Amendment in the United States and you have uh, the best protection in the world of uh, free speech, this is also a matter of culture. And it's a matter of, uh, of social pressures, is a matter of uh, the way individuals and organizations you understand themselves free speech and its uh, limits. Uh, not everybody has the resources to turn to the courts um, so, so so, free speech is not safe in and by itself just because of the First Amendment. There are many other factors at play. So do you believe that
0: we're sort of in a transition period uh, from print media where you know the press was only free if you had one into uh, the internet era where anyone can essentially publish or buy ads that say whatever they want to say? Is it your belief that we're just sort of in a transition period and at some point – without government intervention, that this problem will be settled?
1: Yeah. I I mean, it's difficult to say. And it's clear that this is a disruptive technology in many ways. And, and it makes a lot of people feel uncomfortable. How are we going to manage this? Also, in terms of the terrorist threat, uh, the sharing of jihadist uh, material on the Internet, uh, the recruitment of ISIS, warriors uh, traveling from the West to uh, Syria and so on and so forth. But I think there is a precedent in history that we could benefit from taking a look at, and that is the invention of the printing press by uh, Johann Gutenberg in uh, the 15th century. Uh, That was also a disruptive technology that for the first time made mass circulation of uh, newspapers, books, uh, leaflets uh, possible. Um, like we now have the smartphone that makes everybody uh, connected to one another if they have a smartphone. Uh, back then it was a printing press and and, um, and and in the beginning, this was seen as you know a huge big breakthrough, but very quickly uh, state power and the church um started to uh, try to uh, control this uh, technology and they introduced heavy censorship. Uh, you had uh, witch hunts. You had uh, the burning of heretics on stakes. You had the killing of uh, blasphemers, uh, especially in Catholic countries, uh, and so on and so forth. And you had the, the Catholic Church, um, uh, you know, introducing this index uh, on banned books uh, at the time of the Inquisition, and that was also a reaction to the invention of the uh, of the printing press. And and looking back on that period, it turns out that the uh, the, the states and the parts of Europe that in, that that introduced the most severe censorship, they in fact fell behind. So, so, I think the conclusion is when you have these kind of new disruptive technologies, it's better to, to wait a bit and focus more on the upsides of the technology than the downsides uh, and, and not take immediate action to, uh, to limit freedom of expression.
0: Fleming Rose is the 2016 recipient of the Milton Friedman Prize for Advancing Liberty. He's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast at iTunes and Google Play, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.